we'll, we're going to dig a little deeper into some of the kind of sexual culture and, and movement and those expressions that have happened in the church a bit. But, you know, since we can kind of seem to agree that the Bible isn't exactly designed to be a guide to sexuality, then, then how do <laughs> how do the Christians, you know, form a healthy understanding of sexual partnership and practices? You know, I guess, you know, where do we go to as a people of the word who want to trust and have faith in the word, but recognize not a limitation, but the intention behind such things. So where do we therefore turn to trusted sources, um, you know, for, for a better understanding of sexual partnership and practices? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Trip Hawthorne, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guests for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation are Sheila Ray Gregor and Dr. Keith Gregor. She is a sought-after speaker and writer about sex, authoring numerous books, including The Great Sex Rescue. She's also the host of a Bear Marriage podcast. Keith is a pediatrician by trade and co-author with Sheila on a new book. Uh, Sheila and Keith, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. So right off the bat, our audience knows that we're going to be having a conversation about geopolitical economics and the threat of international <laughs> markets on domestic self-interest. Um, we'll, we'll get to the books and your work here momentarily, but uh, what would you want your listeners to know about you beyond your writing and, and your podcast work together? 
Oh, like as a couple? Well, Keith is like a total avid bird watcher. Yeah. And so we like getting in the RV and going all over North America looking at birds, but we haven't been able to do that because we can't cross the border right now. <laughs> two years, two years. Maybe it'll maybe it'll let up soon. <laughs> well, I guess for our listeners, just you know, y'all y'all now join the uh, the select group of northern neighbors that we've had on the podcast. But we we love our Canadians right. that that join us. So and hey, if borders are open, y'all y'all feel free to come down anytime you want because I I yeah. would love to get up to y'all. <laughs> Um, um Louisiana, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like out and about in the south, so you can all hear us say out and about. There you yes. go. <laughs> you know, I was gonna say, like, can can we set you up for some go-to like Canadian um phrases? But you just you went ahead and took care of that. You yeah. know how's it was, going, eh? For for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So so before we jump into the, the latest book and research, um, I'm wondering, Sheila, what, what inspired you to write and talk about the one thing that most people in churches try to avoid? talking about <laughs> oh gosh I certainly never planned on it I was I was mommy blogging in 2008 so I was writing about parenting and housework and organizing and marriage and whenever I wrote a post about sex my traffic grew and so I started writing more and more about sex and pretty soon my whole blog was sex and it's just not something you dream of doing when you're a little girl like you don't you don't think you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna become the Christian sex lady um but somehow I did and in 2012 the original version of the good girl's guide to great sex was out and ever since then I've just been writing on sex and creating courses and lots and lots of fun stuff Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Sheila and I speak about marriage and sex all the time and the way that happened was uh, one day she came to me uh, while I was doing my mild-mannered job as a pediatrician and said, hey, sweetheart, how would you like to get up in front of hundreds of or thousands of people and talk about the most intimate details of our marriage? And of course, you know, what guy wouldn't jump at that? So, you know, here we are years <laughs> later. So yeah. writing books together about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, since the conception of writing about sex until now, um, and no, that was not an intended pun, but I, I realized... <laughs> I realize now. Uh, so what what do you think has been the biggest change for you? You know, what have you changed your mind on uh, that yourself from all those years ago would be shocked to learn? Oh, I, I really don't um, talk about gender essentialism the way I used to. And I used to, I used to be very much, you know, men, God made men like this sexually, God made women like this. And there's a purpose for why we're different. But as we've been doing more and more research, and that's really what our new books are, is they're based on huge studies. It's just so much more nuanced than that. And when we talk about things in very gendered terms, we actually do a big disservice to couples, I think. You know, within the church, why, why do you think talking about sex and sexuality is is so taboo or or off limits? I don't know if it's um, as taboo as everyone thinks it is. <laughs> I one of the problems, of course, is that you just can't talk about it from the pulpit because it's not appropriate. I mean, I, I wouldn't want a pastor talking about something really explicitly from the pulpit because mm-hmm. there could be kids in the audience, right? There could be you know, divorced people, widow people who really don't want to listen to that. I mean, there's a lot of, there's not a good space for it. And so therefore we don't talk about it very much. And therefore it seems like it's taboo. And I'm not sure that it is in the same way, because um, I just find that the more I talked about it, like I said, my traffic grew, I've, I've done so many speaking engagements on it. And I think a lot of churches are really desperate 
to give good teaching in this area, but it, it's just hard to do it in a Sunday service. And so um, having books that you can study in, in small group studies, having an event come into your church where, you know, I'll talk to the women or we'll talk to couples or whatever, um, that seems to to work quite well. Now, that being said, there are certain states where I have just never been able to get a booking. Like Tennessee will not talk about sex. I don't know what it is about <laughs> Tennessee, <laughs> but, but I can't get a booking in Tennessee. But uh, you know, other than that, it's been it's been pretty great. <laughs> I'll I'll hold my comments on Tennessee, knowing that we've got some good listeners from from that state. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny you talk about. Um, preaching from the pulpit. So um, I passed for a local congregation in addition to uh, working alongside CBF. And uh, I did a series one time. Uh, it was a summer of love series and I focused all on relationships over the summertime. And you know, I was like, I knew, I knew we were going to have to talk about this, like in some sort of way. And knowing we had a diverse audience, you know, singles, uh, you know, anywhere from children all the way up to senior adults is like, how do you address this? So, you know, I just kind of approached it talking about uh, you know, the Bible talks about that every action we we take is an act of worship to God. And so how do you want to worship God through your sex life, um, you know, with your spouse? And I'll never forget the conversations I had in the weeks after that, in which I had some <laughs> of our couples come up to us and said, you know, we were really worshiping well this week. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I got a wink and it was like, oh, okay, gotcha. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, as a, as a person of faith, um, you know, you certainly turn to the Bible for, for truth and guidance and insight into life. And while the Bible talks a great deal about sex, we have to recognize that it was written through a highly patriarchal lens where women were often viewed as second and silent and objects. Um, there's more written in there about things to avoid sexually, but not so much, you know, a guide to healthy sex, you know, sex life and sexuality. And yet that doesn't prevent people from using the Bible to be the end all be all topic on sexuality. Um, what are your thoughts on what the scriptures have to offer us on sex? And, and what do you think the intentions are behind some of those key texts? I think one of the big things is that often people bring interpretations to the Bible that they don't realize are actually interpretations. So they'll read something in the Bible and they'll they'll have a lens that they're looking at it through, but they don't realize there's a lens. And the classic one is the first Corinthians seven passage, uh, which is about mutuality in the sexual relationship. But what we see preached in the church too often is that it's used as a club to bludgeon women into having more sex with their husbands. Um, so do not deprive, uh, you know, and, and women are taught that. Uh, so, but people don't see that that is an interpretation of those verses. And those verses are supposed to be talking about, in fact, mutuality. Um, and I think it all comes down to our definition of sex and, Sheila, you, you, you're the one that says this. Yeah, so well. like if I were to, if, 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 if someone were to say, did you have sex last night, which is a super nosy and inappropriate question, but, but if someone asks that, what, we're, what we think they're asking is something along the lines of, did you have intercourse last night? Like intercourse and sex, those are the same thing in the way that we think about it. The problem with that is that it prioritizes his experience and erases hers because she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head. She could be lying there in emotional turmoil or she could even be feeling coerced and it would still count as having sex. And what, what I'm trying to get people to do is see that that is not an appropriate 
or God-honoring definition. Because when you look at scripture, we get a couple of pictures, and I'll, I'll give you just three in scripture of, of what sex is supposed to be. In Genesis 4, verse 1, we read this strange verse, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived a son. And it's easy to read that and think that God is just embarrassed of using the real word or using a euphemism. But the word for to know, the root of that in Hebrew is the same root when David says, search me and know me, oh God. So I think it's telling us that sex is supposed to be this intimate knowing of each other. And then in Song of Songs, they're both having a super good time. So sex is pleasurable. And she says more words than he does. So she's having a super good time. So we have intimate, pleasurable for both. And then as Keith just said, it's something which is mutual. And that means that both people need to matter. It's not, sex is not about one person using another. It's about two people experiencing something intimate and wonderful together. Mm -hmm. And that thing that they experience is more than just a physical act. Um, you were talking earlier about how, you know, everything is an act of worship. And so this, our sex life should be, you know, an act of worship. And we don't tend to think of sex in, in spiritual terms like that. Uh, but what we try to do in The Good Guy's Guide and, and, and in Sheila's other writings as well, too, is talk about sex as both physical, ment uh, physical emotional, and spiritual uh, in nature. And I think what we do in the church often is we sort of divide those things up. Uh, and we sort of think that, you know, guys get the physical side and women get the emotional side of sex. And that's where we get into trouble with gender essentialism, because what we're basically teaching people is that for men to think of sex as anything other than physical is somehow odd. And for women to actually enjoy the physical part of sex is somehow odd because we're not supposed to do that. Um, what we're trying to do with our writings is have a much more holistic approach that we can learn from each other, that we do truly complete each other, and, and we, are, we both reflect the image of God and the fact that we both show sides of things, that when we see the whole picture, we're both richer for it. Sex is emotional, physical, and spiritual for both the husband and the wife. So, you know... We're going to dig a little deeper into some of the kind of sexual culture and, and movement and those expressions that have happened in the church a bit. But, you know, since we can kind of seem to agree that the Bible isn't exactly designed to be a guide to sexuality, then, then how do <laughs> how do the Christians, you know, form a healthy understanding of sexual partnership and practices? You know, I guess, you know, where do we go to as a people of the word who want to trust and have faith in the word, but recognize not a limitation, but the intention behind such things. So where do we therefore turn to trusted sources, um, you know, for, for a better understanding of sexual partnership and practices? Yeah, I think this is where I hope that denominations like CBF and other churches, which are very cognizant of how much women's needs have been devalued in the church as a whole, will recognize that a lot of the resources that we often recommend are not safe and they're not healthy. Because when we, when we want to learn more about sex, the typical thing that we do is we go to a Christian bookstore or we go to Amazon or wherever it is, and we look up for Christian books on sex. And there's quite a few of them. But what we may not understand is that a lot of those books actually look at sex from a very dangerous viewpoint. And I, like I said, I've been writing about sex since 2010, roughly my first big book, 2012. Um, I've, I've been creating courses on it, but it wasn't until January of 2019 
that I actually understood that we have a big problem in the Christian church because up until that point, I hadn't read other Christian books. I didn't want to plagiarize. And so I kind of assumed, well, they love Jesus. I love Jesus. So we must all be saying the same thing. Um, and then I had this migraine. It was January after Friday afternoon. I didn't want to work. And I was on Twitter and people were arguing about whether they needed respect or love. And they were referring to Emerson Egrich's book, Love and Respect, where he claims that men need respect, but women need love. And I thought to myself, I have that book upstairs, but I've never read it. So I went and got it. And I opened to the sex chapter and I read to my horror, if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. So he framed sex as a husband's need, but not anything to do with the woman. And he talked about how the husband's need is for physical release. So it's, it's all ejaculation. It's not anything intimate. He never talks about intimacy. Uh, he explains that women need to give their husband sex or their husbands will have affairs and that women need to understand that husbands struggle with lust as a way to honor their husbands for this struggle, which all men have. Um, and there isn't anything in that chapter, not a single word about how women can feel pleasure too, or that women should feel pleasure. Sex is just framed as a man's need. And I thought, oh my gosh, if this is what we're teaching, no wonder people are messed up. And that was really the catalyst for us doing our huge survey of 20,000 um, Christian women for our book, The Great Sex Rescue, was we wanted to see, are there certain evangelical teachings which hurt sex for women, which, which hurt our sexual and marital satisfaction? And we found that there's a lot of things that are being commonly taught. And so I just hope that people will open their eyes and that even if we don't want to go to the Bible, we won't just automatically assume that a Christian book is healthy because a lot of them are not. I guess at this point, we should probably give our readers and listeners kind of a warning, you know, the nature of this conversation today. I'm sure somebody just spit their coffee all over the place when they heard you say the word <laughs> ejaculation. So um, your your uh, your latest book, uh, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, say that five times fast and it'll be really difficult to say, but uh, you wrote uh, vulnerable vulnerability, intimacy, orgasm, they're all designed to go together. That's what great sex is supposed to be, something that is at once physical, emotional, and spiritual. Uh, what, what's the vision behind this book? It's the opposite of saying that uh, your man has a need you don't have, and it's for physical release. <laughs> I mean, sex is something that's supposed to be marvelous um, um, expression of two people in, in the marital relationship that God uses the word no to describe. Um, it's an incredible, amazing experience. And to, to, to frame it as the Christian church tended to, has tended to do as a purely physical thing, um, we think is really an injustice. So we're trying to give a much more a holistic approach to things. Yeah, we're trying to get away from this idea of male entitlement to sex mm -hmm. and instead see it as something mutual. And the other issue, um, you know, you were asking where do people go for help? One of the big problems with a lot of specifically evangelical sex and marriage resources is that they're they're based on a pastor's opinion. If you take a look at our mm -hmm. marriage and sex bestsellers, the majority of them are written by people with MDivs. That's the only credential they have. And I know you're a pastor, okay? And I'm not trying to... <laughs> and pastors are wonderful. We need pastors. But just because you're a pastor does not mean that someone has the necessary training to know everything there is to teach about sex. And 
we have left a lot of our, of our teaching of marriage and sex in the hands of people that don't, that haven't been trained in it. And then they don't rely on research. Mm -hmm. And so what we really try to do is, first of all, we did huge studies of our own um, and, and to academic standards. I just want to jump in here and say too, that Sheila talked about her study of 20,000 women. And then we subsequently did a survey of 3,000 men, 3,000 men. Um, but like, this is not a survey that said, what do you, do you think this hurt you? Do you think this decreased your marital satisfaction? What she actually did on, in this survey was she surveyed women about their marital satisfaction. Uh, and she surveyed them about their sexual satisfaction using um, well-tested and tried questions that show those things reliably. And then she asked about a number of core beliefs. And then after they'd answered those, those questions, she was able to categorize the responses and find the ones who believed certain things or didn't believe certain things and compare how they answered the questions of marital and sexual satisfaction. So we're not asking people's opinions about whether things hurt them. We're, she was measuring whether these teachings actually, in fact, did lead to lower um, levels of satisfaction and worse outcomes. Mm -hmm. well, and our data well, set is now, it, it, it's, it's in academia now at Purdue University at the archives of, of uh, religious data. So other researchers can use it too. So we did it to academic standards. And I just think the Christian world needs to raise the bar on what counts as advice, because we have honestly done a lot of harm with the way that we've been talking about this stuff, especially because we focus so much of our sexual advice around male entitlement and around this idea that all men struggle with lust, that, that the objectification of women and male sexuality are one and the same thing. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Well, let's, let's take this a little deeper. You know, this book 
uh, lays it out there. It, it, it educates and informs it and validates deeply held misnomers from male dominant views of a wife's role in sexual relationship. It even explains why only 39.4% of women orgasm, um, you know, to, to men who don't understand that because it works for them every single time well, for most of us, most of the time, you know, um, if it, if it takes a book like this, specifically written for men of faith, what, what's missing in the church conversation about sex and gender and sexuality and more? I think that there's there's a big misunderstanding that um, because we're telling people wait for marriage for sex, right? So we don't want to tell them too much about sex, except that you're supposed to wait for marriage. And then if you do wait for marriage, it's going to be incredible. So we kind of have this sexual prosperity gospel, <laughs> like, right? Like if you do all of the right things, God will bless you immensely. And what we aren't told is exactly how that's supposed to happen. And the truth is that sex is not automatically great for a lot of people. <laughs> it, 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 there is a big learning curve. And while gender essentialism doesn't work in a lot of areas, so for instance, um, saying that men have high libidos and women have low libidos, that is not actually accurate. There's a big overlap. Saying men are visual and women aren't, um, again, that's not accurate. There's a big overlap. Uh, but there are certain things that are biological and even just our sexual response cycles, and we don't teach this. And so we do need to understand that. And I think there's just a lot of ignorance about how our bodies work. And when you combine that ignorance with a very male-focused view of sex, then we can end up with a situation where women just never learn how to feel good and men never realize that's a problem. Yeah, and men don't realize that that's part of their role as a husband uh, because this is something that you know, comes naturally to him uh, and, the, and it should come naturally to her because that's not just what the church teaches us, what Hollywood teaches us, that's what everyone teaches us. It's, it's easy, it's fast, it's no problem. Um, and so then therefore when he actually has to slow down and be patient because things take a little longer for her, he doesn't know how to handle that. Uh, and we hope to give guys a much better uh, guide to how to be a good lover to their, their wives when, once they're married. You conducted a, a fascinating survey for your book, The Great Sex Rescue, and you specifically were looking at the belief that a wife has an obligation to give her husband sex when he wanted the survey found that 39% of women believe this when they were married and 21% believe it now. But you've also linked this belief to higher rates of sexual pain, lower orgasm rates, and lower marital and sexual satisfaction. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. Yeah, that was one of the most dangerous and toxic beliefs that we found. And about 24% of men currently believe it as well. So you're looking at roughly a quarter of men and it has bad effects when they believe it too. But what the obligation sex message really says is, okay, a wife, wife, you are obligated to give your husband sex, do not deprive him. And if she is obligated to give him sex, then essentially what's that, what that's doing is it's telling her, you don't matter. Your needs don't matter because no matter what you're feeling, you need to give him sex. So an example of this would be Kevin Lehman in his book, Sheet Music, talked about how um, if she's not feeling well, or if she's postpartum, or if she's bleeding really heavily during a period, 
um, she can satisfy her husband in other ways <laughs> instead when he's ready to climb the walls. And that idea that no matter what physically she is going through, <laughs> what he needs is more important is really toxic because if sex is supposed to be a deep knowing this turns it into an owing <laughs> like it's not about knowing me anymore i'm actually being erased and i think that's one of the fundamental reasons why um if you believe the obligation sex message your chance of experiencing or her chance of experiencing primary sexual pain or a sexual dysfunction called vaginismus which is when um, the muscles of the vaginal wall contract and become really tight, which makes penetration difficult or impossible. Your chance of experiencing that increases to almost the same statistical effect as if she had been abused. Because both abuse and the obligation sex message say to her, you don't matter. He has the right to use you and it has devastating effects. And this is what we teach over and over again. And we think this is one of the big reasons why evangelical women suffer from sexual pain at twice the rate of the general population, because we've taught women, your needs don't matter. I had a couple's, um, who might've had one or both had this belief, talk about a different mindset about sexual needs in a, in a healthy way. You know, I'm sure there's some grief if, you know, that's the starters of emotions from a woman who might've experienced her husband's belief about this, um, that it was her obligation. And there's probably some huge guilt from a husband who might've actually held this belief. So how, how do they talk about this and take a, a different mindset in a healthy way? I think one of the things I would say is, is that, you know, as a husband who did have that kind of mindset early in our marriage, and we're very open about that in the book, The Good Guy's Guide, um, I absorbed a lot of that entitlement mentality, uh, and it wrought tremendous devastation because I didn't even realize I was being selfish, uh, because this is the way we were taught in the church. Sex is for men. Women need to give it. That's the way that it works, uh, and it caused a lot of harm, and, and I think that we that there is hope if we can change the mindset that men can understand that this is something that's supposed to be amazing and wonderful for both of you. Uh, and I think we're seeing that. We're also seeing a lot of pushback from people who don't realize that male entitlement uh, is their mindset. They think that it is the way that God wove the fabric of the universe <laughs> and they don't see it's their own personal opinion. Um, so we get a lot of pushback in that regard as well. Well, it, well, it might have been well-intended. Um, the evangelical movement created a, a lot of anti-sex movements throughout its history. Of course, most of our listeners are, are familiar with the True Love Waits deal. In what ways do you think these attempts to curb sexual appetites of young Christians was, you know, positive? What kind of positive effect did it have before we start to get to the uh, detrimental effects? We actually measured that in a survey that's not out yet in a book where we're writing a, a mother-daughter book and we we uh, surveyed about 8,000 women to, to talk about how the messages they heard as teens hurt them. And if I can, if I can give it in a nutshell, presenting positive messages doesn't actually hurt. It's correlated with high religiosity and that tends to result in better outcomes anyway. So for instance, telling young people you know, God wants you to wait for marriage for sex because then sex is such a richer experience and, you know, it's God's best for you. That does not hurt anyone. But telling young people, if you have sex before marriage, 
you will ruin the rest of your life and you will ruin what God wanted for you. That has devastating effects. So it's the difference between a fear-based or a threat-based um, approach to sex and more of an inspiration truth-based <laughs> approach to sex. And whenever we get into fear-based messages or threats, we end up doing a lot of harm. And I think that's true in almost any aspect of religion. You know, when we're, when we're giving a fear-based message, you need to do this or else, then it creates tension. It creates fear. It creates anxiety. And instead of creating something, which is this intimate, lovely experience, you create a lot of coercion and you create a lot of guilt. Um, and that's what we've seen over and over again. One of the messages that we did measure in, um, in the great sex rescue was this idea, boys will push your sexual boundaries. That's heavily taught in our youth groups. You know, girls, you need to be careful because boys will push your boundaries. And so you need to be the gatekeeper. You need to make sure things don't go too far. As an example, in, in Shanti Feldon's book, and she's written a lot of books um, for women and to understand sex. And she wrote one for teenage girls called For Young Women Only. And she did a survey of boys and she found this. I don't agree with this stat. I think her question was leading and her answers were improperly coded. But her conclusion was that 82% of boys feel little ability and little responsibility to stop in a makeout situation. So if you want to stop, it's better to not even start. I don't know how anyone gets away with saying that 82% of boys have little responsibility or ability to stop. Like that's just rape culture. <laughs> that's, that's straight up rape culture. I can't think of anything more rapey than that. Um, but this was the message that was given throughout focus on the family's Brio magazines during the height of purity culture in her books. And so you have these girls who are taught, you need to be the gatekeeper because he can't stop. And then you have boys who are taught, you can't stop. So she's the gatekeeper. And what happens is if you're in a makeout situation, what's going on in the girl's head is, should I stop him now? Is he getting too excited? Where are his hands going? And so she's not focused on herself. She's focused on him. When those same women get married, <laughs> they have a very difficult time with arousal because they have spent their lives dissociating from their bodies to try to make sure that they stop him from getting excited and they have no idea how to actually feel what their bodies feel. Um, and so that's something that we found over and over again in our survey, but also in our focus groups when we tried to tease this out more, is that a lot of women had their, their arousal short-circuited because they were taught that you alone are responsible for stopping. Mm -hmm. And so they were never, so they just completely lost um, any concept of their own sexuality. So uh, I'll make no bones about it. I'm, I'm a firm believer that the purity culture of evangelicalism has messed up some people mentally and spiritually with, with physical um, and psychological results, as you were just alluding to. Um, for many, we were told through a microphone of religious piety that we should fear our sexual desires as tools of the evil one. Um, you know, I believe wholeheartedly that it generated lasting anxiety within people's minds that continues to affect the sexual lives and practices of adults, even if they're married or single. And I've had conversations with friends and, and parishioners who've told me that they still feel guilty, as you were just alluding to, to being touched sexually by their spouse because of what was hammered home all those years ago. So first, um, you know, 
I guess how do we how do we overcome these types of things besides a lot of really good therapy? Um, uh, you know, and, and how do people overcome such lasting psychological effects, uh, you know, of these tactics within their marriage, within their own sexual existence, if you will? Well, I think it comes down to understanding sexuality in a, in a positive way. I mean, God did create us as sexual beings. uh, And as Christians, we need to come to terms with that. Um, And we haven't, we haven't done a good job of that. I'll give you a good example from the survey we did with the men in the good guys guide study. Uh, We surveyed 3000 men there. And the the issue that encapsulates it for me with men is the issue of lust. Um, And so basically, you know, you see that the the message out there constantly is all men struggle with lust. Um, It's every man's battle. There's even whole book series written with that sort of idea. Um, but that's our thesis was that that was actually not the case, that not all men struggle with this. It's not a sin that is undefeatable, that all men will always have their entire lives. So we actually asked the men in the survey, uh, do you struggle daily with lust? And what we found was 75% did say they struggled with lust. So already that's a bit of a change because it's not 100%. It's not, it's not every man. Um, the people who are in that camp, though, would tell you, well, those 25% are struggling with lying. Because I think we really have misunderstood what lust is from the very beginning. And so what we did in our survey was we went on and he asked those 75 men who did say they struggle with lust. 75% of men. Sorry. Oh, 75 men. Yeah, sorry. The 75% of men who did answer the question that they did struggle with lust. We went on and asked them questions. We gave them vignettes in life and we gave them different ways to respond to that. And some of them were lustful and some of them were, were, were not. And then we looked at how many did. And I don't have the exact numbers. But a very, very large number of men who claim to have a daily struggle with lust, we couldn't find any evidence of it in the way they answered the other questions. And our theory for that is, is that those men are struggling with the fact that they feel that being attracted to women is somehow a sin. Um, and we, I, I think that we have conflated in the church lust with sexual attraction to women for men. And there is a lust. There is something that is called lust. There is something, a sin that is called lust that we need to fight. But because we've tied it so closely to just normal sexual desire, and we don't have a concept of what it means to be a normal, healthy, you know, sexual male, uh, we just think all sexual feelings are lust and we lump it all into the same group. And this has two devastating effects. The first thing is guys who are just having normal thoughts that a normal man would have feel tremendously guilty. And even worse, men who have lecherous or lustful or horrible thoughts think, oh, well, you know, that's the way that men are. I'll never be different. I might as well indulge this. And so we punish the good guys who are trying to be respectful to women. And we give free passes to the guys who are treating women as objects of sexual, you know, gratification. And it's a doubly, you know, double barreled sort of evil. This book gives uh, an in-depth look at how um, many women work sexually, and yet we are still all different as a result of how our bodies are made, where where pleasure is stimulated, and psychologically how we respond to certain desires. Since we are so complex, I have two questions. Uh, First, what's your advice for someone who needs to know that they are okay, that they're not weird or different, but uniquely themselves sexually? I think if it's a woman, because it's often women who feel this way, I would just say you are not broken 
if you don't work the way your husband does. Since sex is, is usually, not always, but usually easier for men, they have an easier time getting aroused. They have an easier time reaching orgasm. They often, not always, have a higher libido and a more spontaneous libido. We tend to think that that is the definition of being sexual because it's easy for him and he enjoys this. Then what's wrong with you that you don't? But there isn't anything wrong with her. She's just simply different. And, you know, our survey found that we have a 47 point orgasm gap. Okay, by which we mean 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm in a given sexual encounter, but the equivalent number for Christian women is closer to 48. So that's a 47 point orgasm gap. But those 48% of women, a lot of them were once in the 12% who never reach orgasm. So it's not like all 48% started marriage and everything worked great <laughs> for a lot of women. It's a learning curve. And sometimes it takes, you know, for some of them, it took a couple of years. Some of them, it even took a couple of decades until they got there. We really seriously hope that with the good guys guide to great sex and the all new good girls guide to great sex, that it will not take years <laughs> that, that we've got enough information there that this can happen fairly, fairly quickly. But I do think that there are a lot of women, especially who feel like they're broken because they don't work the way their husbands do. And then there are both men and women who feel like they're broken because their libidos are more responsive rather than spontaneous. And what I mean by that is that if you watch any movie, TV show, Netflix show, whatever it is, the plot when it comes to sex is always the same. Okay. So the couple is together and they're panting and then they start to kiss and then their clothes come off and they end up in bed. And so that's what we think the order is. You pant and then you kiss and then you take off your clothes and you end up in bed. So pant, kiss, close bed. That's the way it goes. And so there you are at home and you're waiting to pant and nothing's happening. And so you think to yourself, well, I guess I just don't want sex. <laughs> but for a lot of people, it isn't pant, kiss, close bed. Like for a lot of people, it might even be bed, kiss, close, pant. <laughs> you know, like you don't start panting until after you've started the kissing for a while. And that doesn't mean you're less sexual. It just means that your sexuality is more responsive rather than spontaneous, and you can still feel just as good. And more men are spontaneous than women, um, and more women are responsive, but it doesn't mean that there aren't responsive men <laughs> or that there aren't spontaneous women. Um, and so it doesn't, you're not broken if you don't match the gender stereotype and you're not broken if you don't spontaneously pant <laughs> if it takes you a little bit of warming up it doesn't mean you're not sexual the second question is what's your advice for someone who wants to better understand their partner's unique sexual core i think one of the big things is just talking about it and I know that's a struggle for a lot of couples because this isn't something we normally talk about, but saying something like, you know, I know that God made this to be awesome for us. And I, I feel like we're missing out on something. And I would really love to, to work on this with you and to make this into a journey of discovery, because I want to make I want to rock your world. <laughs> I want to have my world rocked. I want to experience great passion, but it might be a learning curve and I'm willing to do that work. 
And can you help me? And having that kind of a conversation to lay the groundwork. Mm. And I'd like to challenge the guys too, because often guys do have the pant kiss close bed mentality. Uh, so I challenge the guys to say, you know, take it down a notch and realize that sex is meant to be more than just a physical act. There's a, there's an emotional and spiritual side to that as well too. Uh, and take your time and be more sort of gentle and not rush through things. I think that we need to be less goal directed in terms of sexuality. We need to see it more as everything we do together as a couple um, rather than just the act of intercourse. What's your hope for your readers? I would love to see people put aside all the toxic messages that we've heard and just feel free. <laughs> just realize I'm not broken. Um, there's nothing wrong with me. And this is supposed to be a beautiful thing. And I can figure this out. We can figure this out together, even if we're not there yet. And even if it takes a while, we can figure this out. You know, in the great sex rescue, what we were really doing was knocking down all of the harmful teachings that have been so prevalent in the Christian church. And what we're trying to do in the good guys guide to great sex and the updated good girls guide to great sex is build something healthy from the ground up. So it's kind of, I kind of see it like Ecclesiastes three, there's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones together. So if you've been really messed, if you've worried that you've believed way too much harmful teaching, read the great sex rescue first, but for young couples starting out, let's give them the healthy stuff to begin with. Let's make the good guys guide to great sex, the good girls guide to great sex, the bridal shower gifts so that people start well. And even if you just want a vision of what God wanted for sex, where it's something beautiful, it's not about entitlement. I think these books will really help people reclaim that passion and intimacy that God intended for us. Our guests are Sheila Ray Gregor and Keith Gregor. Uh, the book is The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. If you want to learn more about Sheila's work, check out her website, SheilaRayGregor.com. Sheila and Keith, uh, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. And thank you for creating healthy conversations around the thing that most people in churches don't want to talk about. Well, thank you. It's been wonderful to be here. It's great to be here. Thanks. Before we wrap up our episode, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK is excited to once again be sponsoring CBF's upcoming General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Stop by our booth in the exhibit hall. Join us as we honor our 2022 Addie David Award recipient at Baptist Women in Ministries Gathering or attend the workshop being led by Reverend Erica Whitaker, BSK's Associate Director for Institute for Black Studies. We'd love to connect with you at this special event. Learn more about BSK at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 